and welcome to Series 4 of the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. It's now two years since the first ever podcast went out and we've covered many issues, interviewed patients, families, nurses, surgeons, oncologists, researchers, dietitians, charity workers and fundraisers, all sharing their experiences, knowledge and wisdom. This series opens with special episodes for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. This year we are focusing on palliative and end-of-life care, which holds some special challenges given the current survival rates for the disease. We have a lineup of wonderful people for the months to come. We are pleased that this year the podcast will be in support of all four pancreatic cancer charities, Pancreatic Cancer UK, Pancreatic Cancer Action, Pancreatic Cancer Research Fund and the Elizabeth Coatman Fund. If you listen to the podcast, please subscribe, share and help others understand more about this disease, its impact, the current survival rates and the hope for change in the future. The Purple Rainbow podcast is made in memory of Seth Goodburn and it's a part of Seth's legacy. Welcome to this episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts. I hope you are well. I'm going to be honest with you from the start. This episode is not an easy listen. You'll be hearing from Claire. I spoke to Claire about her experience when her dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and then sadly died. The experience that Claire, her dad and the rest of her family went through is very difficult to listen to and I just want you to be aware of that before you start listening. Now, Claire does get upset during this interview and we pause the interview at different points in time just to make sure that Claire was okay. But Claire has told me that many a time that she really wants her story to be heard. And it's not just her story, it's her dad's story as well. So let me introduce you to Claire. My dad, well, my dad was life and soul of the party. And, and lots of people say that, but when there was over 250 people in the church for his funeral and they stayed all day until the pub closed for his, you know, for his wake, everybody was talking about lots of stories. He was everybody's friend. He helped everybody. Um, he'd always worked very hard and instilled that in us from a young age because when he was a child, traditional large family, uh, not much money. He was the youngest. So he started to work from the age of about 14 to bring in money for the family. And um, he had a really good work ethic. So he would work very hard. But the weekends, it was always about fun. Being outside with the children, we would go in the fields because we were from the countryside. You know, just learning about nature and life. It was, it was really good fun. And he carried that through all of his life. He loved doing motorsports. He loved being with his friends. He liked tractors, anything. He liked aeroplanes, you name it, that kind of thing. But he really was passionate about everything, just life, just life. He sounds like, and I mean this in a really good way, he sounds like such a dad. It's like, it's such absolutely. a dad thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But the thing about my dad for me is I was the oldest child and I was told, you know, from the day one that I was home, it was me and my dad. It was always me and my dad. 
and and that carried on until the day he died you know we would go to lots of places together and have lots of dad daughter time it was a very special relationship he didn't it wasn't quite the same with my brother and sister but with me yeah we definitely had a real connection real connection he sounds ace he was awesome absolutely my hero i will you know there's never anybody like him there never will be again sadly though he died in august 2018 that's right yeah and it was pancreatic cancer yes what led up to his death okay so um like i said my dad was life and soul and as my both my parents retired they decided you know no children at home they would always go on holidays they'd been in tenerife for december and january of 2017 2018 then when they came back um, he had a new knee in the February because he's very active, lots of walking, still doing motorsport, at, you know, 70 years old. That went really well. He was recovering from that really well. Then he started to feel a little bit unwell in April. Some sort of tummy issues that, you know, he didn't quite know what they were. Nothing serious, just made him a little bit unwell. He thought it was related to having surgery earlier in the year. Um, and actually, that was put down to some acid reflux. So they changed his diet. He couldn't have certain things which he really enjoyed. <laughs> you, know, you know, he wasn't allowed to have alcohol, which was a little bit of a shame. He wasn't a big drinker, but with his friends, they would often have a glass, you know, just, just to relax, I guess. Um, that stayed actually quite stable doing that diet for a couple of months. And even though he wasn't quite 100% with the tummy troubles... In the June, my parents went to Benidorm with a group of their friends, again for another sunshine holiday. The end of June, lots of fun. There's my dad on a scooter with my mum, just, you know, doing things that, you know, teenagers would probably do. <laughs> <laughs> but in the photographs, since then, he had lost a lot of weight, which I didn't notice at the time because it was, you know, he wasn't a big guy, but I just noticed it in the photos afterwards. Came back from Benidorm. He wasn't quite himself again. And during that week, first week of being back, he was quite unwell and went to the GP who said um, it was probably gallstones. But because it wasn't too bad, he would give him, you know, keep an eye on him, do this, do whatever they were doing. I don't know. I wasn't there. And um, just just said to keep an eye on it the following week my dad was so ill on a Friday he went to the GP and the GP said look really I need to get you into hospital but as it's Friday we'll leave it until next week um, but if you have a problem at the weekend please go straight there well the following Saturday which was an England football world cup game I think it was um my dad was taken to a &E by my mum at nine o'clock at night because she couldn't get an ambulance and my dad had collapsed at home. And, um, you know, my mum was 69. She had to pick him off the floor and took him to A&E where he was made to sit out in the reception area waiting for hours and hours on end. Obviously, we all rushed there. My dad was very yellow, which I hadn't seen since the week previous. He was very yellow. Um, he was very unwell and he found it easier and more comfortable to sit forward because he had pain in the stomach radiating through to his back. Um, he, he really did look very unwell. So from that point, uh, they did some tests in A&E and 
admitted him. He obviously had some scans. Four days later, they said he had a two-centimetre tumour in his pancreas. Um, and they said it uh, wasn't, um, wasn't, couldn't have an operation. But they were going to look to perhaps do some chemo, but it would only be palliative. And at that point, uh, I, think, I think our entire world collapsed. Because we were thinking, well, it's a two centimetre tumour and you've only just diagnosed it. This doesn't, this doesn't add up. But I have to say, within three days, uh, my father had started to, to get, I don't know, what ACTs, that word, when all the fluid builds up. Right, yeah. Yeah, so then he had to have a stent fitted. We were still in hospital. They fitted the stent because that, that, that bloatingness was making him feel extremely unwell. And we were not getting any sort of information about what was going on. Didn't under, we didn't understand things. All we knew is my dad had a two centimeter tumor in his pancreas and he was looking very bloated and they were going to fit a stent to release this fluid, but, but nothing else. And he was in a surgical ward. Well, you know, they were nice to him. And they, they were just talking about discharging him and sending him home. It was Okay, we didn't, nobody else said anything else. We'll, we'll get an appointment for you to see an oncologist, but it will only be palliative. Uh, obviously, we were assigned some extra support, which, which I didn't think was there, to be honest, but um, I know that everyone's busy. Um, we felt very abandoned. So my dad was sent home, and for two days, he actually did feel well. Not 100%, but he was glad to be home. He managed to eat a little bit, uh, and he looked well in himself. The yellow had drained a little bit from his skin tone, and we all were really hopeful and clinging on to the fact that, oh, he's going to be able to get some treatment. And unfortunately, um, I popped in to see him uh, on the third day after coming out from hospital, on the way back from a meeting, and he was laying on the sofa in absolute agony and he was a dark yellow. So I was like, dad, let's go, we've got to go. I just had to take him and I took him to the GP and the GP said, you need to go straight to A&E. So that's what we did. And from there on, my dad was placed in a bay, in a open ward where he spent the last few days of his life just with he didn't receive any pain relief unless we asked for it. He didn't have any help with food unless we sorted it out. We were there 24-7 between my mum and myself and my brother and sister. Nothing was really explained to us. He wasn't looked after. Um, I, I felt that we were all abandoned, but more so my dad felt abandoned. And the other gentleman in the ward felt for my dad because they were not in the same position as him. And they, they would say to us, you know, he's had a really bad night and he couldn't get any help. He wanted some pain relief, but couldn't get any. Um, and we could see that. We were pushing to get him to come home because we just had this feeling that we could look after him at home and it would be better. Even though I think at that time, I think most of us were just in a, a shock, a haze of shock, because you just don't really understand. It's, just, it's all just so quick. It's totally understandable to be in that sense of shock because you're not only dealing what you're dealing with a diagnosis mm -hmm. and you've just been told your dad your hero 
Yeah, exactly. It's so poorly. He, he, there's no recovery from it. Exactly. And, you know, that wasn't the case. You know, not like it was a really quick turnaround as such. Yeah. And then you're in the hospital setting and a hospital setting, nobody is relaxed. Nobody, you know, it's not a natural place to be. No, it isn't. Absolutely so not. So it's absolutely understandable that you're in this, this state of mm. just shock, worry, anxiety, but also trying to do your best for your dad as well. Exactly. I, mean, I remember walking in one morning and um, my dad, they were giving him some tablets and painkillers paracetamol looking type things in a little paper cup and they were still on his locker from the six o'clock shift and nobody had even because he had he couldn't sit up he didn't have the energy to take them you know and it was all I felt like oh well it, he's gonna die so let's just you know we can just leave him to get on with it and that's actually how I felt and that's how I still feel now very very abandoned I felt like because they couldn't do anything for him they would just leave him but he wasn't on morphine and he was in a lot of pain for the last few days. Um, his legs were leaking fluid because they kept, they kept him on a drip for the family. That was, that was what they said because it'll make us feel better, but it actually it was doing my dad harm. He didn't need that fluid going into his body, but nobody explained it. They just kept putting up a drip and then Two days before he died, they said, you know, he doesn't need it. It's not doing anything for him. But, you know, we had to go for a few days of just just not knowing anything. I felt very lost and, and I would say very angry. And I'm very angry still now. I don't think that will leave me, if I'm honest. I don't believe I would treat a dog that way, which a lot of people say about lots of situations. But that was my dad. And I saw him go, you know, just a couple of weeks before he'd been on a beach in Benidorm. <laughs> you know, this, this was unbelievable. The, unbelievable. That, that's, that's the really difficult thing to get your head around is, you know, one minute he's on holiday in Benidorm, as you said earlier, living it up like a teenager, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And the next, obviously, I, I didn't, I, I've never, never seen him, but I'm next, I'm imagining he looked very old very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that changed from when I saw him um, when he was in hospital discharged to when I saw him a couple of days later, he had aged. You know, he had, there was, there wasn't my dad that I was looking at. It just wasn't. And I, I just knew that he was in pain, you know, but we had to ask for Auramorph. I didn't understand why he wasn't on morphine. You know, I, he doesn't need it. <laughs> But I'm not expert enough to ask those kinds of questions, or I wasn't. I didn't. I didn't understand. You know, my mum completely was in an absolute daze. They'd been together for over 50 years, and she she was she completely shut down. She completely shut down. So you know, being the oldest, I felt like I had to try and hold it together and find out what I could find out. And everybody wants to know, how's your dad doing? And, you know, you can't say. How do you say to someone, oh, well, actually, he, we don't think he's got long left. How do you say that when you don't know that yourself and you don't actually accept it? It's extremely difficult. Mm. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, uh, an oncologist did come to see my dad the same day that um, a lady came to see us about bringing him home. And we arranged furniture, things to be delivered on the Monday. The oncologist talked to my dad. My mum specifically said, please don't tell him that he's not 
going to make it. Just just explain to him that you're just going to try and get him stronger. And the, the oncologist actually, he was really sad for my dad. You know, he was the, the one and only person I felt had some empathy for the situation. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I made all these arrangements to get all the furniture for dad to be at home with us. And unfortunately, my dad passed away on the Sunday before he was due to come home. And my dad's death was in a middle bed in a bay of six in a ward of 42, um, just in an open ward with others around him. We were all with him. Um, but his death was very traumatic, not peaceful like you see in the movies. It was extremely traumatic. And uh, all of us have got or had PTSD because of it. We had a feeling on the Saturday before that, you know, it wasn't far away, even though nobody had actually told us that was the case. Nobody gave us any timelines, no no weeks, months. It was just it's, it, it's, the end is going to happen. So I think we were all in a bit of a daze and we went in on the Saturday and we were told, you know, go home. It'll be fine. We got the call on Sunday morning. You need to come. And we get there. And I remember I walked in and I'd always said to my dad every time, hi, dad, really quite high pitched. But I'd done it since I was a teenager. Yeah. And my dad shot up in the bed and he tried to say my name and uh, he laid back down. He was struggling a lot. I was holding his hand and, um, yeah, he was He was definitely, I think he was frightened. I just got this feeling he was frightened. I think he was in pain. He didn't know what was going on. I think he knew we were there but wasn't 100% sure. Um, and within an hour of us being there, he, he passed away. But like I say, it was extremely traumatic. There was a lot, a lot of blurred and stuff. It was awful. Yeah, and in an open ward, so he had absolutely no dignity whatsoever. I was going to say, that's bad enough if you were in private in a room on your own. That's mm. traumatic enough to deal with. Yep. But when in an open ward with yep. others around, and, and I'm sorry I'm bringing it back. No, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, no, I just, I just, I can't even begin to imagine. I really, really, it was, I was with my nan when she died and again it wasn't the worst ever but mm -hmm. it's still not a it's not a pleasant experience it's no. really no. it's not it i think you know hollywood and the telly has a lot to answer for when it's just a case of oh they just shut their eyes yeah exactly it, it's it's absolutely not like that mm. i can imagine going through with my nan on an open ward mm. not even for a second could i imagine that so yeah. I'm I'm genuinely stunned mm -hmm. by what happened to you and your and your and your dad. Yeah. Genuinely stunned. You know, it's I, I can remember uh, he I remember when the moment he passed, I remember saying, Oh dad, really loud and a nurse came and quickly threw a curtain across. So there wasn't even a curtain. You know, they they pulled curtain at the side, but at the end it was open. And they came and ran and pulled a curtain across. <sighs> You know, at the time, you don't. Of course, you don't think about that because it's, it's You're your dad. On your dad, <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, it was. I have never felt so abandoned. I don't think, and I, and I just, I wish I knew and understand more because I would have done so much more for my dad. So much more. I would not have just put up with being fobbed off, which is how I now feel.
I would have asked more questions. Um, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. You know, it, does, it doesn't change what happened to my dad and I can't bring him back. But I think, you know, talking about it now is good for me. And hopefully other people will learn that, you know, ask the questions, you know, keep asking questions. If you're not happy with your answer, get keep going until you get what you need. Because that's the thing that we didn't do because we didn't know. And we were in a haze, a shock. And without any previous experience of anything like that, you know, my dad had never had anything. <laughs> this is just unbelievable, you know. Mm. And you mentioned the fact that you all got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And it's only now you feel comfortable enough to mm. talk about it. And I'm not saying it's a comfortable experience, but you feel strong enough to talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. Is this sort of a similar thing for the rest of your family as well? Is it, you know, the the the, the aftermath is almost worse than what happened, the, the pre? I don't, uh, I, I think the problem, I think the problem with the aftermath is you start to think and you relive things. And then for me, I, I start to think, well, if I had done that, if I had asked that, so you start to beat yourself up a little bit. Um, but... You know, my mum is 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 a shell of her former self. You know, she, it was her and my dad were life and soul, and she doesn't even leave the house. I know we've got COVID, but um, I had to live there for a number of weeks after my dad had passed away. She 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 wouldn't have eaten. She just wouldn't. And I know lots of people find it extremely difficult when they lose their life partner, but she just is not. She's just not my mum anymore. You know, she just isn't. She needs a lot of care now. She's only 70 herself. She's still extremely young. But her life finished that day and she's openly admitted that. And she's told her friends that have really rallied around and tried to do what they can. Um, you know, but she, she's not interested. She's not interested in life. She doesn't want to know. She would have just passed away herself if it hadn't been for us just know doing what we do and still do now and will do for the rest of her life it's almost as though you've lost both your parents isn't it that's what it feels like if I'm honest um my mum is on some medication to try and help her get through every day um yeah but she's she's not herself not at all and she never will be again and what is very interesting is the the wave of shock that went through all of their friends and so many people who asked me at my dad's wake, what on earth is pancreatic cancer? Yeah. What is it? I've never heard of it. I can't believe it. I only saw your dad a few weeks ago. You know, uh, it just goes to show you how aggressive and, and an evil killer this disease really is. And once you lose somebody to it, it's what's left behind as well. Yeah. It's it's devastating. It is mm. a devastating disease. It is, absolutely. Claire, has anyone ever said sorry or apologised? No. No. I was going to go through, I did talk to pals, and I was going to go through the process. Um, but I, I was seven weeks still out. Of, I hadn't gone back to work. It was seven weeks after losing my father. And... Um, 
I, I wasn't ready at the time to go through all the detail. I think it was too soon. But I did speak to pals anyway. And she said, oh, you'll probably get a letter. A letter. So what, uh, <laughs> what's that going to do for anybody? You know, and to be perfectly honest, in, and in a selfish way, I thought, well, why am I going to put myself through that? My mum really can't manage it at all. My sister is a bit touch and go. My brother, he just locks himself away and doesn't deal with things. That's how some people do it. Um, I was going to have to do it on my own. And I wasn't going to get anything from it that was of any benefit. And it certainly wasn't going to bring my dad back. So why put myself through it if it wasn't going to make any difference to anybody? Yeah to get that totally understand no I don't felt that they appreciated the situation I, I felt like we were actually part of a, a hamster wheel and they have this situation quite often actually and it, you know we're just another number that's how it felt yeah yeah very very abandoned that's probably the right word to use by everybody obviously it's still a difficult time it's still difficult to talk about this what what would be your one message to to people listening if you know if you could just get them to do one thing from listening to this for me i just desperately just ask ask questions if you're not happy you have to have a voice for the person that is suffering if they're not able to ask the questions you have to do it for them and if you're not happy keep asking it is just so important you know my dad had 25 days of life from diagnosis that is all others have less it, this is this is so aggressive it's absolutely critical you know i wish when the gp had i wish i'd been there when the gp had said to my dad on that friday we won't admit you to hospital but he should have done why didn't he because it was a weekend to me i would have said well no he needs to be in hospital but afterwards, you, you know, you trust your GPs, you trust the decisions that people are making around you. But actually, if you're not, if you get a feeling, I had a feeling, if you have a feeling, do something about that feeling and ask and keep asking. You have to. Yeah, your gut instinct is really wrong, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that now. And that's that's the message that people, I hope, can take from this is please just ask the questions. It doesn't doesn't change the situation, but you need to be armed with the facts and the information and understand exactly what is going on. I just need to say a big thank you again to Claire for for sharing that story. And as I said at the beginning, I have spoken to Claire. She is okay. She was fine at the end of the interview. Uh, And like I say, she just wanted to make sure that the story got out there. As always, really appreciate you listening to us really appreciate you sharing your stories as well and if that's something you want to do tell us your experiences then you can always get in touch with us the website is purplerainbow.co.uk